HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. In some of my songs, I have casually mentioned the fact that I like to drink beer. This little song is more to the point. Roll out the barrel and lend me your ears. I like beer. It makes me a jolly good fellow. I like beer. It helps me unwind and sometimes it makes me feel mellow. Makes it feel mellow. Welcome to Beer Whiskey Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, April 10th, 2012. Tonight's show is The Yeast Show. I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43, joined tonight by Garrett Oliver from Brooklyn Brewery. How are you, Garrett? I'm doing pretty good, but that sounds a little strange, The Yeast Show. I don't know. What kind of person are you? Is this a beer show or what? <laughs> <laughs> well, Yeast Show, let's give a shout out to our sponsor, GreatBrewers.com. Check out their Beer Cloud app. You can learn about where to get your favorite beers, GreatBrewers.com. And we're supported by the people at the Good Beer Seal, an association of 34 New York City beer bars and growing, GoodBrewSeal.com. So, Garrett, this is the Yeast Show. We've got, well, we've got hops, water, and uh, malt. And we've, we've done shows on all those. And this is the first time we've really done a specific yeast show. We're going to have a call with uh, Charlie Bamforth from uh, UC Davis uh, a little later in the show. Uh, what, what is yeast? Why is yeast so important in beer? Uh, well, without yeast, all that hops and water and, and, and malt comes to nothing. Or at least it comes to, you know, it doesn't even come to bread. So it, uh, it, actually, it actually comes to nothing. Gruel, perhaps. Um, now, people, we often like to say uh, in breweries that uh, we work for the yeast. We make wort, and the yeast makes beer, and all we're trying to do is make it happy so that it will do what we want it to, uh, rather, than, uh, rather than something else. And you know, that's actually a lot of it. You, know, you have a symbiotic relationship with this, uh, this microorganism, and it's alive, and it acts like an alive thing. You know? And it, uh, uh, it's, it's interesting, over time, you, you come to see yeast as having personality. Well, uh, yeast, I, I think about baking bread. I always buy Fleischmann's at the store. I'm not a home brewer, so I'm at a disadvantage. But um, what, what is a typical, like if you're starting out making beer, what, what type of yeast strain would, would you use? Or is it uh, oh, specific that, to styles? Well, it is specific to style. But I think that, uh, I mean, many American home brewers will start off with something relatively uh, uh, neutral, clean, 
and strong fermenting like Chico, uh, which, of course, is originally from uh, Sierra Nevada, now used uh, uh, pretty much worldwide uh, and, and known for its cleanliness of, uh, of flavor. But it really depends on, uh, on, on what you want. I mean, you want, uh, you want your yeast, obviously, to consume sugars and give off alcohol and give off uh, certain kinds of flavors, but it depends on what flavors you want. And uh, as uh, Charlie will probably get into, yeast is controversial. You know, because, uh, you know, people have different ideas about whether or not there really are two species of yeast or whether two species came together to make really one. And we just call them by different names, depending on what we're doing with them or uh, et cetera. And this becomes actually rather political. You can hurt some feelings. Well, we also have Jason Rodriguez. He's a postdoctoral fellow at Columbia University. He's our science guy. Uh, he also has a blog called sciencebrewer.com. Uh, Jason, what's, what is so great about yeast? And tell me something specific. Like, could I put Fleischmann's yeast from the supermarket in, in my wort and make beer? Well, you could. Unfortunately, uh, you might not have the best tasting beer. <laughs> uh, might be closer to something that you've made with bread, for example. Um, brewers yeast, specifically for you know available to home brewers and pro brewers, um, really they've been cultivated over time, evolved basically to to make great beer. Um, so that's why you really want to choose uh, brewers yeast over over regular baking yeast used for bread. And what's the difference? I mean, how many centuries have they been cultivated and? Oh, over many, many, many centuries. As a matter of fact, I think it all went back to ancient uh, Sumerians um, in, the, in the Fertile Crescent. They actually were the first, usually the, the history says that they were the first ones that actually used yeast. They didn't even know that they were using yeast, but they, they had a pot of, 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 of grain that you know, rain hit it, and um, it happened to mash that grain, and then the yeast got in there, and spontaneously made um, an alcoholic beverage that the, the people that drank there really liked it, and um, it spread to the world that way. And uh, yeast has have been used to, for bread and, and everything else uh, since history began. So, well, the, What the modern brewer is really looking for is a yeast that's going to do what it is that, uh, that he or she wants, and of course there are many strains out there. You know, One of the main things that, uh, that you want in a brewing yeast is for it to be genetically stable, you know, which means that when it uh, reproduces, that it reproduces a yeast which is very much like the yeast you had before, so that you can actually keep reusing it and reusing it over time. At Brooklyn Brewery, we have our main ale yeast uh, was first pitched in 1996. Uh, it has not been recultured or in any way repopulated or anything else since. Uh, so the, uh, the yeast that we are fermenting with right now is a direct line from the yeast from 1996 with, uh, with no breaks in between, you know, which is, uh, in some parts of the world, not that unusual. So the yeast goes from uh, fermenter to fermenter? From fermenter to fermenter. Uh, in this case, uh, we have yeast brinks now, so we do uh, hold on to them. But it's not like uh, we, at some point, uh, recultured it from a slant or from a single cell or anything else. We've actually never recultured this yeast, uh, where most of our yeasts might go through only uh, 10 or 20 generations at most before uh, being recultured. So uh, some yeasts are really robust that way, and some mutate uh, over time. And when they start mutating, that means the beer is going to change, and uh, you're going to need a new one. And where does you get that yeast from in the beginning? Uh, I actually got it from Paul Saylor uh, when he was working at a place called at Manhattan, uh, uh, not Manhattan Brewing Company. It was a sister to Manhattan Brewing Company called Commonwealth Brewery, uh, and they were in Midtown. And Paul and I go way, way, way back. Um, more than 20 years and uh, you know in 1996 Paul lent me some yeast and it's still here <laughs> that's wild when we know there's a trade in, in malt and there's a trade in, in hops is there a trade in yeast 
Oh, absolutely. We're, you know, the latest, the next beer that we have coming up is actually using a yeast strain uh, from our friends at New Glarus. Uh, so Dan Carey, a great brewer uh, out there in Wisconsin, uh, had lent me this yeast several years ago. It's a lager yeast. It has a very specific character to it. Um, and people think of lager yeast as being quite neutral, but in fact, there, it, there are certain types of lager flavors. Um, they can be neutral, but they can also be slightly sulfurous and, uh, and interesting. And uh, we're using it to create a beer called Gold Standard, which will be kind of almost a ramped-up version of uh, uh, sort of unfiltered Bavarian Hellas. It has a very specific flavor that you almost never see here. It sounds really good. You've brought us an interesting beer tonight. Uh, what is this beer, Garrett? Uh, this is a version of Crochet Rouge. Now, you've had the Rosé version before. Uh, Crochet Rouge is a version of our local one, which starts off as a Belgian Strong Golden, aged on uh, wine leaves from our friends at the Red Hook Winery in Red Hook, Brooklyn. They do 100% natural fermentations, which means that they don't add laboratory yeast uh, to their uh, wine must, which is the grape juice. Um, so they get a completely natural fermentation made up of all the wild yeast and bacterial strains that are in the countryside. They then give us this slurry of liquid when they move uh, their liquid off of that, uh, that yeast bed. And then we put it in a barrel with Local One for nine months. And so what you taste here is uh, you got a little bit of barrel character, but this is a second or third use barrel. Um, what you're getting mostly is uh, uh, a distinct acidity, um, a definite sort of Britannomyces funk from the, uh, the yeast strain Britannomyces, which is often referred to as being wild, um, and uh, all sorts of other microorganisms that are kind of going on in there. So we've, we're basically using the winery, in a way, as a collection point for yeast from the countryside of Long Island. I was going to say, the, uh, the beer has a nice uh, wine-like character. So, it really does. It's I really great. It's even varietal a little, a little bit. Or, you know, that could be my imagination. No, no, I'll have to agree with you. Definitely, uh, I, I can imagine Riesling when I, when I drink the beer. Yeah. <laughs> and we have Tony Ford here from Ale Street News. Tony, uh, you, you've made haikus and uh, played your flute for, for beer. Do you have a haiku about yeast yeah, for I us? Yeah, play for beer, not for money. But uh, you may know, some people may know that um, back in the um, Middle Ages, um, they didn't know what yeast was, but they did have a word for it when this modeless fermentation happened. It was called God is Good. Wild fermentation and the miracle of yeast. Indeed, God is good. Here's another. Without Nietzsche's yeast, life would not be such a feast or fun, to say the least. All right. <laughs> well, Jason, you, you, we need the science in here because we got Charlie Bramford coming up. Okay. So we've got yeast that are borrowed from other brewers like New Glarus and right. Manhattan beer, and, and then there's laboratory yeast. Uh, tell us, what, what is yeast? Well, well, what is yeast? I mean, it, you, can, you can ask either a home brewer or a pro brewer what, what yeast is, and, and um, although you're going to get different, uh, the same answers, you know, they make beer, um, to a home brewer, um, the, the, the ability to have so many uh, different types of, of yeast strains available um, can, you know, a home brewer who really has a, the ability to make any, many, many different types of beers. This is a little bit different from the pro brewer who, who's driven by, um, you know, market needs. They have to stick to, to specific beers and they might not have a lot of opportunity to, to make different beers. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> except for our uh, brewmaster here, <laughs> Garrett Oliver. Um, I don't know about that. I, I, we've used an awful lot of yeast strains at Brooklyn Brewery, and I know a lot of brewers who might work through ten different yeast strains in a, you know, in, in, in a year. So I think you can get some pushback from uh, you know the, the professional brewing community on that one. I stand corrected. <laughs> hey, Garrett, what happened? Like there, Back in the day, it used to be people were scared of having more than one yeast in the brewery. Now it's open season. Uh, well, I think that you know a, n- a number of things happen. I mean, uh, you had the rise of, uh, of people like Y Yeast uh, and White Labs, who actually provided a wide range of yeast strains. And uh, people were also experimenting with you know these various yeasts and finding that if you had good practice, uh, you would not have cross contamination in the brewery. I mean, basically speaking, you know, when something goes wrong in that regard, you get if if you uh, here's a good example: um, the flavors that are in vice beer, banana, clove, bubblegum, smoke, all these characters that we associate with vice beer are largely created by the yeast strain that's used. And if you use vice beer yeast and it gets into your pale ale, your pale ale will start tasting like the, those things as well. Um, you probably don't want that. So uh, you have to keep these two things separate. And basically speaking, if, if it gets from one place to the other, it's because you made an error. Um, it can't get there by itself. You have to allow it to happen or cause it to happen. And, uh, you know, if you don't do either of those two things, you can keep them separate. Basically, cleanliness is godliness. Yeah. I mean, uh, 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 cleanliness plus, uh, uh, you know, st- actual sterility, you know, sterile practice. And so as we got better as, at, 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 as brewers at doing these things, we gained the actual ability to keep these things separate. When, when we started, you know, we probably didn't have the technical skill. So, Jason, uh, I'm really interested in your blog because... Um, sure. It's again called sciencebrewer.com. Yep. So, so how did that start? Because you're, well, you know, you're a scientist. Are you a microbiologist? I am. Well, actually, Same as Charlie Banforth, right? Uh, well, no, no, very, no? very, very different. Um, well, Ban- uh, as, as I recall, um, Charlie Banforth did start out as a microbiologist way back, uh, I think, in the seventies, or, or uh, as, and he was doing a lot of research. Don't uh, diss the seventies. <laughs> oh no, no, I love the seventies. <laughs> um, but I, I, so I'm actually a virologist. So I work at Columbia University, and uh, we study retroviruses, which is everything from HIV to any virus related to HIV. Um, and one thing that I wanted to, to point out is that um, a lot of research actually uses yeast. And uh, science as we know it today would be in the dark ages if it wasn't for yeast. Um, we can, we ha- you know, a lot of labs actually do experiments on yeast to, to determine uh, different sorts of things. And we wouldn't really know much about HIV, actually, if we didn't do experiments on yeast with HIV sort of proteins. So, so if, if we go back to the 1800s, let's say when there was more commercial breweries just starting, and Garrett, I know you know about this stuff. When did they go from just having you know natural yeast, wild occurring yeast, to actually being able to identify yeast strains and be able to shop and say, I'm at this brewery, we want this yeast strain? Well, that was Carlsberg. I mean, Carlsberg were the first to actually separate out you know, single cell cultures. Um, so, you know, they were the first ones to have actual yeasts on plates and be able to say this is this and this is that, uh, largely by colony morphology. As you grow a colony, it has a certain shape to it and the, and, and the way that it looks. Um, and uh, that is certainly one way to tell apart before you got into the modern age where you could do genetic typing, you know, and things like that. Um, 
what we find, interestingly, we talk about Britannomyces, you know, which uh, uh, the so-called wild yeast strain. Well, the Britanno in Britannomyces uh, means Britain, and Britannomyces means the British yeast. So where these days we think of Britannomyces as conveying that Belgian flavor or some sort of Belgian idea, in fact, you know, in the 1800s and early 1900s, the flavor of Britannomyces was, in fact, the flavor of British beer um, and, and, and was so prevalent throughout Porter and other beers of that day that, uh, uh, that they named the actual yeast after it. And can you control Britannomyces? I mean, do, do you, can you buy it? Or do, or oh, do you yes, have absolutely. to have cultivated in your So I think of Brennomyces just like any other uh, yeast strain, just like a regular Saccharomyces. I mean, brewers, pro and home brewer, can use Brennomyces just like Saccharomyces. And if you're, if you're clean and, and sterile in your technique, it should be totally fine. There should be no cross-contamination. Um, and you can make a wide var- variety of beers that way. Um, uh, Brettanomyces, as Garrett has alluded, can add a lot of distinct uh, characteristics to different type of beers, as as what we're trying right now here with this uh, Crochet uh, Rouge uh, Riesling. It's yeah. Now, in this really case, the Brettanomyces was in fact wild. Uh, came out of. Uh um, these wild fermentations. But one difference is, I mean, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, because you'd be the guy to know, um, my understanding is that Britannomyces is well known for not being uh, uh, genetically stable. So as it... No, at, not at all, yeah. Yeah, so that's a big difference between Britannomyces and Saccharomyces. If you if you repitch Britannomyces from one batch to the next, you may get completely different beers from one time to uh, the other. I agree. You know, it totally changes. I mean, the the Britannomyces that you can buy at, at Weiss or White Labs, Britannomyces lambicus and bruxellensis, for example, you know, I, I kind of view those Britannomyces strains as, as commercialized. They're not really... They might not be wild and per se anymore because they've been, um, you know, uh, propagated in a lab and, and used over and over and over again. Oh, but snap, that hurts. <laughs> <laughs> but, to, you know, the, it's, it's easy to actually get um, wild yeast. Um, they're all around us in the air that we breathe and, and on the fruit and everything. So, um, uh, But, yes, I agree with Garrett. Uh, uh, Brettanomyces definitely does have um, a lot of genetic variability to it. Well, what would I want to do? Let's, let's say, forget, you know, I'm not a homebrew and I want to shop for this particular yeast. Let's just say I'm trying to cultivate something new. What would be a good way to create a, a yeast stream? Would I, like, grab the ends of grapes and rub off the... Well, yeah, you can definitely do that. Something um, like that. You know, you can... I, I know this one, a friend of mine, who actually literally just... Um, he went to a winery near his house and um, got a few grapes and just put it in a, 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 a tube of sterile water and basically isolated yeast from that the skin of that grapes, and that was a reflection of the terroir, basically, the, the yeast that's indigenous to that winery. And um, I, I, I'm not sure if he's going to uh, use that for, for his brews, but um, you can definitely do something like that. Um, there's another home brewer that I know out in Arizona that is trying to get um, uh, uh, wild yeast off of, of cacti, I believe. I don't know if, if that's uh, possible, but um, it could be interesting. <laughs> don't see why not. Yeah, it's it's definitely possible. Well, hey, I can tell you what. This is a really good warm-up to our yeast show, and uh, we're going to take a short break. Tony Forder here is going to give you a flute uh, send-off, and uh, we'll be back in a few minutes with uh, Charlie Bamforth from UC Davis on Beer Sessions Radio. Well, 
took me a woman late last night I was three-fourths drunk, she looked all right Till she started peeling off her onion gook She took off her wig, said, how do I look? I was high-flying, bare naked Out the window Yeah, sometimes I might get drunk Walk like a duck and smell like a skunk Don't hurt me, nana, don't hurt my pride Cause I got my little lady right by my side She's trying to hide Pretending she don't know me Eyes out there painting on the old wood shed When a can of black paint, it fell on my head I went down to scrub and rub, but I had to sit in back of the tub. Cost a quarter. Half price. When my telephone rang, it would not stop this President Kennedy calling me up. He said, my friend Bob, what do we need to make the country grow? I said, my friend John, Bridget Bardo, Anita Ickberg. Sophia Lauren. Hey, hello, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We're out here at in uh, Bushwick, Brooklyn. Bushwick is a cool place. We're in Roberta's, a great restaurant out here. And uh, every week, Tuesdays, 5 p.m., we're here on Beer Sessions Radio. All right, we are talking about yeast in beer. And we've got an awesome beer from uh, Russian River. Garrett, you're buddies with uh, Vinny, aren't you, from Russian River? He's a good pal and, and one of the best brewers in the United States. Have you guys ever collaborated on anything? We haven't. You know, we uh, uh, you know we're on opposite sides of the country, which doesn't uh, stop us from uh, either one of us from getting around. But uh, we keep talking about it, but we haven't uh, we haven't gotten around to it yet. But we uh, we we talk about a lot of stuff that we're doing. So, what, what beer of his are we drinking? Well, right now we have Supplication. So uh, it is uh, a beer aged in Pinot Noir barrels, uh, or uh, meaning, of course, uh, oak barrels that previously had Pinot Noir wine in them. Uh, with uh, with cherries added, and uh, you know it is basically Vinny's version of a type of creek. When we talk about yeast, I mean, we said that you can get some wild yeast or natural yeast from grapes. Can you get that from cherries also? Uh, yes, you can. It, it definitely exists, but I don't think that was uh, Vinny's intent when he added the the cherries. Am I right? No, no. That, I mean, I think the beer uh, the beer has inoculations of uh, of of, of Britannomyces, but also uh, a number of uh, bacterial strains, including Pediococcus and Lactobacillus, you know, which are giving you some of the complexity of flavor and, of course, the uh, the trademark sourness. So these are you know the uh, a lot of the beers that uh, Vinny does along these lines are really. Uh, based on lambic styles, and are in some ways recreating, uh, uh, you know, some of the complexity of lambics uh, through inoculations of uh, of different yeasts and bacterial strains. And uh, you know, he probably knows more about it than anybody in the United States. I remember when uh, Vinny was the keynote speaker at the Craft Brewers Conference. Um, must be over five years ago, and uh, I believe it was this beer that he served to to the audience um, for breakfast. It was quite challenging at the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good breakfast beer. I'll have it with oh. bacon, definitely. Hey, is uh, our our calling guest on Charlie Bamforth from UC Davis? Hello. Hi, Charlie. How are you? We're here in New York at Beer Sessions Radio. Nice to be with you. Hey, man. Hello, Charlie. All right. How are you? We got everybody. Introduce yourselves to Charlie because I'm sure he knows you all. <laughs> uh, you're Tony Ford, Ale Street News. 
Uh, Jason Rodriguez at uh, sciencebrewer.com. Uh, Garrett Oliver, I, I believe we've met. <laughs> Do I know you, Garrett? <laughs> yeah. no, not street, not since you disowned me, but that's okay. <laughs> and B.R. Rolia from Shelton Brothers. All right. So, Charlie, and I'm, and I'm Jimmy I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's number 43. So, Charlie, uh, we've read a lot about you. Um, you are prestigious, and we are... Uh, I ordered your book online from Amazon, but it hasn't come yet. So, um, there's so many of them. Huh? Yeah, come on. <laughs> but um, tell us how you got started in beer, because uh, originally you were you interested in science first, or were you interested in beer first, or both? Say that one more time. I, you're breaking up there. Say oh, that sorry, again. Mate. What do you say? Right. Uh, how did you first get started in your career? Uh, it was the first job that became available. Um, I was working as a postdoc in, uh, in a university in the north of England and, um, and uh, looking through the job pages and the first thing uh, that caught my eye, they wanted somebody to work on enzymes at the Brewing Research Foundation. So I thought, well, that's good. That'll combine my professional activities with my personal interests and uh, the rest is history. So what was really impressive, you know, I went for an interview on the Thursday and the, the, the uh, offer came on the Saturday. So I thought they want me. So 1978. Wow, you're not too old. Garrett was just talking about the 70s over there. Yeah, I know, but believe me, I remember the 70s quite well. <laughs> and how's that uh, postdoctoral? Well, the 50s and the 60s, though, Garrett. Yeah, I'm a little fuzzy. <laughs> I'm a little fuzzy on the 60s, and the 50s are a total blank. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a bit older than you are. <laughs> well, Charlie, um, you're over at UC Davis now, and I know you've been uh, instrumental in building that program um, into what it is now. Um, but you, your, your real first big job, where was it? Was it at Bass Brewing? Yeah, uh, when I finished the Brewing Research Foundation after five years, the, the people who paid the most money into that organization, which was a membership-based organization, were Bass. They were comfortably the biggest brewers in uh, the U.K. at the time, and um, they headhunted me, so they took me to Burton in uh, 1983, and uh, within the year they made me the research manager in, in Burton-on-Trent. And then, then after a few years, they told me that I had to get the smooth edges knocked off. So they, uh, they sent me to a, a brewery in the north of England, uh, near Liverpool, to, uh, as the quality manager to, um, to hack it on the night shift. So um, that, was, that, was, that was an interesting experience. That was uh, very, uh, very heavily unionized and, uh, and um, quite a challenge, but um, I learned a lot. All right. Well, um, after that, so you're at Bass and... Um, some of the, the things you've, you've done the most research on, as far as I know, have included things like the head on a beer um, and how it's in a glass. Uh, I don't know anything about this, but uh, I'm sure that's interesting to the, the industry. Um, so let's just talk more. We want you to talk. We, we're, we're big fans well, I, of you. I, you know, I, I've got a question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive right in here, Charlie. Uh, uh, here, here, I, had, I had a brewer um, in Germany a couple of weeks ago tell me that according to a range of tests that he'd run, that there were actually no real differences between Saccharomyces strains, um, that they didn't have their own particular characteristics. It simply depended on what the substrate was, meaning the wort, um, and, uh, and, and, the, and the temperature, and, uh, uh, and basically the conditions, the amount of oxygen, the population, uh, uh, etc., 
and that most of the differences between uh, yeast strains were, in fact, entirely our imaginations. Uh, well, well, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I told you it's going to get political around here. So, uh, 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 so what? What would a man like you say about a thing like that? Well, you've got to remember that uh, most of my I've done a lot of work on on yeast, but I've done much more on barley and on, on the Finnish beer and so on. So, you know, amongst all my buddies, people like Graham Stewart and uh, Catherine Smart and so on, who who focus on yeast almost entirely, they. They, they think I'm a bit of a philistine when it comes to yeast because that sort of statement, I, I could hear myself saying it sometimes just to tease them, you know. Um, I think I was I being usually, teased. What I usually tell the story of is, is a very famous brewer, I won't name his name, who I, I took some of these guys to meet him. And he said, you know, I think the character of my beer is all to do with the, the, uh, the malt and the hops, and the yeast is really only there to make some alcohol. And, and I could almost use baker's yeast, he said. So... I think he was joking, but um, uh, in more direct, serious answer to your question or your point, Garrett, um, clearly there are big differences in ale and lager strains, um, and, and uh, you know the lager strains are a whole different organism. That Saccharomyces pastorianus, it's got 50% more DNA, and therefore it does do things that uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae does not do. Um, Having said which, you know, I've looked at a whole bunch of, uh, of yeast strains for certain specific things like, let, let's say, uh, the ability to make dimethyl sulfide, DMS. Uh, and yeast strains do differ. You know, you, you, give them a single, you give them a single substrate, a single type of wort, and yes, they will differ in the amount of something like DMS they'll produce and, and different levels of esters and so on. So I think the, the, the German guy you were talking to was, uh, must have been a little bit tongue-in-cheek. There are differences. <laughs> But, um, you know, the, he's right in saying that, you know, what you feed the yeast uh, uh, is going to have a, a profound effect as well. And it certainly is the case, and something I really do insist is that, you know, you've got a, a really heavily roasted grist, you know, lots of roasted barley and malt and so on, and you've got a heap of hops in there, you know, that, that, you know the yeast is not really going to make much of a contribution to the perceived flavor. But for a gently flavored product... I would argue that, yeah, yeast strains will give you a, a different, uh, different character and, um, and uh, would be important. But, um, so I, I sort of sit somewhere in the middle on that particular statement. No, I, I, you know, I may, I, I'm the first person to say that I could be wrong about this, but I was actually told this by uh, an Anheuser-Busch employee once that Fleischmann's yeast is, in fact, uh, you know, Anheuser-Busch you know, uh, uh, yeast. Uh, you know, it's left. But I mean, think about it. Who has huge amounts of yeast that can be easily sort of spun out into a cake and dried out, you know, and sent out the door? Um, right. It's really only big. You know, Not I mean, people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, fly, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I mean, so uh, uh, Fleischmann's yeast, uh, if uh, what I was told is true, is actually a leftover, uh, a leftover product, and that brewer's yeast, and uh, of course, in the in the ancient household. Uh, brewer's yeast, so to speak, and uh, uh, and bread yeast were, of course, exactly the same yeast. They didn't have different yeast for different things. You need to ferment something or rise something. You use what was at hand. Um, if you go to Finland and have sahti, um, the, the a lot of the flavor of sahti comes from you know the baker's yeast that you know every sahti producer uh, gets uh, you know just at the local corner store, and they are not fancy about about yeast strains. That's yeah. that's what everybody uses. 
Well, I mentioned earlier on that I was a QA manager in one of the breweries, and um, the way we used to do it in Bass, at the time we had 13 different breweries in Bass, and um, the yeast used to be shipped out from Burton-on-Trent, and um, and then you'd sort of, uh, you, as, a, as a slope or as a master culture, and then you'd propagate it. And, uh, you know, we were sent the wrong yeast once, and we, we spotted it, and uh, we said, hey, you sent us the wrong yeast, but some of the other people went ahead and used it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure that they, uh, you know, they didn't really uh, notice that there's anything amiss until such time as uh, they were pointed out, hey, you actually cultivated the wrong yeast there. So, you know, the, 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 it, it's, I, I would contend, I would contend that there are a great many beers out there that um, the yeast is substantially less significant than, uh, than the other fundamental components. Now, but yeast was certainly a big part of Bass's flavor, if I understood. I mean, were you ever there when the Union System was actually still in use at the Bass? The Union System was taken out uh, just before I came. Uh, okay. Nothing to do with me. Um, and it was simply <laughs> taken out because, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a challenge when it comes to microbiology, you know. And so they did a lot of trials. And I tell you, you know, Bass was a very, very responsible company. And they wouldn't do anything trivially until they did all their homework. And um, they they would have satisfied themselves that they could make bass uh, uh, out of a, uni- a Burton Union system, away from Burton Union system, and it was a pretty good bass. So uh, I know that at the time when people were hearing that they were no longer using the Burton Union system, that people were saying, ah, oh, you can tell it's different. You know, there's a lot of psychology out there. You know, you say, you know, people hear a story and they build a lot around that story. Yeah, we've seen that before. Uh, Charlie, um Tony here, I got a question. Excuse me. It seems like so many, uh, there are so many uh, types of yeast strains available commercially now. The, um, could you talk um, to the importance of proprietary yeast? Proprietary yeast, you mean by specific company? You yeah, mean, Pacific, uh, Pacific Brewery, uh, as opposed to, um, you know, a brewery in America could buy, you know, a various different styles of, or, or strains of yeast that are available yep. that weren't available years ago. Right. Well, what I say to people is this. Now, I did my, one of my yeast talks, one of my classes only yesterday. I said, that, you know, there's various ways to get all of the yeasts and, or to try to find a yeast, the right one for you. And the first one is, is pure serendipity. So, you know, buy a bunch of different yeast strains and try them out with your selected wort and so on and see what you come up with. The next best way to do it is steal it. Theft is a great way, and there's a long, long history of theft in the uh, brewing industry. That's right. People, uh, you know, going into the bottoms of bottles and reculturing. Well, one of my favorite stories, one old boss of mine from Bass, was, he was in the Czech Republic. He walked past a fermenter, an open fermenter, with his handkerchief, took it out, slayed it across the top of the fermenter and put it back in his pocket and brought it back to England and said, isolate what you can from that. Um, and we did. So, it speaks to the same point, the point that Garrett was making, that, you know, it, it really does depend on, on what, your, what your, your basic feedstock is. If you are going to be making a beer from a fairly gentle grist with uh, no extremes of, um, of flavor derived from, uh, you know, specialty malts or, or hops or what have you, then, you know, it's... I, I'm pretty confident that you try a few different yeast strains, you will get some different effects. And of course, the, the extreme is, 
in, in, in Saccharomyces terms is, is of course uh, the heifer yeast which will you know, give you an abundance of banana and, uh, and uh, clove for vinyl glycol so it, there is a, a clear example of an ale strain that, that really does have a, a, a substantial effect and I would argue that if you don't have that clove or, or banana bubblegum character on your heifer vice and it ain't authentic so so yeah, it's it's it, in terms of the mainstream yeast, just how much difference is there between, say, a core strain and a and uh, an Anna's a bush strain or something? Then uh, sure, they'll they, they may well differ in their uh, their flocculation abilities and this sort of thing. But uh, do they m- make huge differences in terms of the flavor delivery? I don't know that one of them will make a certain type of compound that the other one will not make. It may differ somewhat in the extent to which they do it. Well, regarding your comments about Hefeweizen yeast, all I can say is, how dare you say that about Erdinger? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Uh, Charlie Bamforth, I, um, uh, it's, it's great to have you on this show. I have to say, you know, I, I have a lot of appreciation for um, uh, your career because I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow at Columbia, who's now a member. Right. And, um, you know, I've been looking through your papers from, uh, uh, you know, in the past, and it's, it's great to see a lot of the contributions that you did to beer stability and to... And to head retention and everything. Um, but I have one very, very specific question because I've been listening to a lot of other podcasts on, uh, on, on for, for homebrewers. And um, you are known as the Pope of Foam. And uh, <laughs> I would Not just sad. like... It's terribly sad. <laughs> <laughs> I would just like to know, how did you get that uh, moniker? Well, apparently that's what they call me in Berlin. I, I had a, a wonderful uh, student came to work with me. His name was Jean-Pierre Biala, and he came from uh, Cameroon. These days he's a fairly senior brewer with, um, with Miller Coors. Wonderful guy. And he, he said to me, you know what they call you in, in Berlin? They, they call you the Pope of Foam. <laughs> it's just a sad thing because if I'm the Pope, that presumably means I'm not going to hand it on to the next generation, am I? <laughs> <laughs> uh, hopefully, there are at least some cardinals of foam, you know, yeah. that are that are that, that, that are uh, that are there to back you up. But yeah, yeah, and, and indeed, quote, quote. I mean, thank thank you for the cue. There's a, a new book uh, come out just this week, um, and the American Society of Brewing Chemists uh, were doing a six part series on. Um, on a troubleshooting guides, and the first one came out only this week. It's all about foam, and so uh, how to ensure you get uh, wonderful foam stability on every glass of beer. Now, uh, I, you know, I've read some things that actually say that uh, that yeast strain uh, restrains can either be foam positive, foam neutral, or foam negative, and that uh, and that refermentation in the bottle, uh, you know, outside of the parameters of CO two content. Uh, uh, is also foam positive. So, you know, have you actually done any uh, any studies on the contributions of particular yeast strains to foam formation and retention? I would say that the the most significant contribution of of um, uh, yeast to beer foam is this: that if if yeast gets old or stressed, then it releases enzymes, proteases that uh, that, that damage the foam, that, that chop up the foaming proteins. So uh, one one uh, line of research that uh, is very powerful and lots of very convincing data is that if you um, have uh, stressed yeast, old yeast, yeast that's been used too many times, too many successive fermentations, um, and gets uh, long in the tooth and, uh, and whacked out, then it will respond by uh, causing you uh, foaming problems. 
It was interesting, the very first uh, people to observe this were founded in the context of when people were comparing pasteurized beer with beer that had not been pasteurized. And if the beer had not been pasteurized, uh, the foam stability went down over a period of time. And the reason was that the pasteurization had killed off these enzymes. Now, this is not a this is not a, uh, an argument necessarily for pasteurization or non-pasteurization, but what the point is that if you have got yeast that is is uh, really um, at the end of its uh, its tether, should we say, and also um, if you leave the beer and the yeast in contact for an excessive period of time, then that's not good for beer foam. So of all the contributions that yeast makes, apart from making the carbon dioxide, uh, of all the contributions that yeast makes, I would suggest that on balance it's a negative thing. Um, and, uh, and, and my dear friend, my closest friend in the industry, Graham Stewart, did a lot of work showing that when you, when you produce uh, beer by high-gravity fermentation, uh, the yeast is stressed, and the yeast does respond by uh, making these enzymes, and that damages the foam. So, so the foam on beers made uh, at very high gravities is, is less good. And that's one of the reasons why. Well, actually, we just we just uh, poured a beer that uh, the Crochet Rouge, which uh, never shows any foam, and that's because of that uh, that yeast breakdown you're talking about. All that uh, you know, uh, all, all that breakdown of uh, and basically emptying out of those enzymes into the solution. Hey, Char- Charlie, um, can you stay with us? We have to take a short break. Um, we'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. Tony, take your flute. <laughs> Heavy duty, man. (laughs) There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. Telling me I got to beware. I think it's time we stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. Okay. Hey, hey baby. Hey, man. <laughs> hey, baby. <laughs> Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Here we are. We've got an awesome cast of characters. we got Garrett Oliver from Brooklyn Brewery. Tony Forder from Ale Street News, B.R. Royer from Shelton Brothers, Jason Rodriguez from Columbia University. How's it going? Yeah. And Charlie Banford from UC Davis. Or as I call them, Bruce, 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 and Bruce. Unbelievable. <laughs> well, we're talking about yeast, but we're talking about a lot of other things. We're talking about foam on beer. Um, I didn't. So do you have to actually to engineer a beer so it has a good foam? Is that is that part of what you guys do when you make a beer? Oh, absolutely. That's one of the reasons why. I mean, look. Uh, we make beer in cans. Uh, we have made beer in cans before, you know, since before it became fashionable. But one of the things I don't like about the can is that uh, you know people tend to drink the beer directly out of a can. Am I saying I've never done this? No. <laughs> I, I went to the beach last summer, too. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot you're going to miss, including uh, a lot of the aroma, but also the foam. We worked awfully hard on that foam, and you got to put the beer in a glass to get the foam, which does change the texture and the mouthfeel of the beer, and uh, it's important. Does foam come differently in a glass than in a plastic cup? 
it, it it forms different in almost every vessel that you pour it in, depending upon uh, 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 both what it's made of and what its uh, surface is like and what the shape of it is. So, uh, you know, foam is dependent not only on the liquid itself, but also how you pour it, what temperature you pour it at. Uh, foam is, uh, is, as Charlie could tell you, exceedingly complex. Charlie, okay. Yeah, and, 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 you know, the glass is very important for various reasons. One is it's got to absolutely be clean and no no residual detergent and no grease and no fat and so on. But also, uh, you know, you can design the glasses such that they will help to boost the foam. And I'm thinking particularly the most important thing is, is more to do with these sort of nucleation sites on the bottom of the glass. You can buy glasses. Uh, one of the brand names is Headmaster. And they've got kind of notches on the bottom, and at those notches, bubbles produced uh, are produced, and they sort of rise through the beer, and you've got this beautiful beading, this beautiful bubble rise that's replenishing the foam the whole time, as well as looking attractive in its own right. Uh, and um, and so, you know, the, 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 the glass itself can have a profound effect. You put beer into a, a glass with a very sort of um, coarse, or some receptacle with a coarse uh, inner surface with lots of nucleation sites, you're, you're really going to produce a huge amount of foam. So, uh, Dr. Banforth, I got a, a very... Charlie, uh, please, Charlie. Oh, Charlie. <laughs> I got a very specific question, actually. It's uh, a lot of debate in the homebrewing circles. Um, specifically, like, uh, during the mash, doing a, um, a protein rest, there's, there's this debate of whether a protein rest you know can contribute to to foam stability or not and today's with today's well modified malts i personally feel that there's really no benefit to it but a lot of home brewers and say that oh you can you can definitely get a, a better head retention and I, I, again it's dependent on the malt that you use for your grist but i just wanted to know what's your what's your opinion on on that in the, the, during the mash process well, you know, the, the, the received wisdom uh, over the years is that low temperature stand in a mash is, is not good news for beer uh, foam. Uh, it is called a protein rest, but uh, there are those who argue that there's not a lot of protein hydrolysis takes place in there. There's a lot of beta-glucan breakdown, the, the cell wall stuff. And some people say that that, that is bad news for foam because the, the beta-glucans give viscosity and that improves the foam. Well, all that is... It, it, to my mind, uh, really grossly exaggerated and is not, not a reality at all. The, the most important thing, um, quite frankly, is just how much protein is there, there you know? The, so a lot of beers with uh, a lot of wheat malt, for example. Yeah, and the, the proteins from wheat malt, actually, molecule for molecule, are better than those from barley. So the, the old adage that you need to include some wheat to actually get a good foam, a really good foam, uh, there's something in that because the wheat proteins are very, very good. But if you've got a, particularly if you've got something like an all malt beer uh, with a significant protein content in it, um, and bearing in mind that the, the proteins that some people think are the most important ones for foam stability are themselves um, reasonably stable, the, rea- the reality is that, um, that you're going to have plenty of protein uh, in, in, in the beer. And uh, you know, subtle differences in, in, in the mashing stage are not going to have a huge effect. Now, if you're going to replace some of that malt with, uh, with an adjunct that does not have any protein in it, then that is all the time just going to dilute out the, uh, the foaming protein, and it's, it's, you're going to have proportionally less. So if you're going to use significant amounts of protein-free adjunct, then that is going to dilute out the amount that's available. 
Um, the other major component in beer that stabilizes the foam, of course, or helps to stabilize, is the bitterness. So the, the more bitterness you have in the beer, the more stable the foam is going to be. So if you've got a, um, a low-protein grist with a low bitterness, then, you know, the, the, the foam is, you know, without naming any names, the foam is not going to be as good as one from 100% malt with a lot of bitterness, you know. In my experience, um, 99% of problems with, with beer foam are, are not due to uh, any, a shortage of anything in the beer. It's, it's due to the presence of, uh, of detergent, lipid, grease, uh, poor dispense, not dispensing with the foam, you know, not, not putting a head on there in the first place and so on. So, I, I thought, so what you mean is that uh, uh, that all comes down to bad people. Yeah, that's what I tend to say. Big, a be, poor foam is caused by bad a, people. I celebrated eating establishments a while ago called the Outback Steakhouse. And this woman of immense charm said, what do you want? I said, well, you know, a menu would be kind of useful. And, and she said, well, what do you want to drink? And I said, I'd like a Cooper sparkling ale. She said, do you want a glass? I said, of course I want a glass. Why do you ask? She said, well, we don't have many. We don't want to run out. <laughs> Charlie, I, I have a... For wine, would you have asked me if I wanted a glass? She said, don't be stupid. Now, what do you want to eat? You should have, um, you should have cupped your hands. Problem. And you go into places, and, and they pour the beer out, and they're being real gentle, you know, and they're, they're just pouring it ever so gently down the side of the glass. Well, you're not, you're not going to produce a foam, you know, and, and that's the big problem. You, you need to pour it with vigor. You pour it into a clean glass. Uh, and, and that's one of the big problems. They wash the glasses alongside all the greasy plates and so on. And, and you know, it, 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 you're never going to get good foam stability that way. So, you know, usually it's not a problem with a beer. It's a problem with the way it's poured. Charlie, I, I'm going to take you to a place in New York City sometime soon called Hospoda on the Upper East Side, where you will see the cl- the cleanest glassware with like filtered water flowing over it at all times. You know where they have uh, several different services of Pilsner Urkel with different types of, uh, of of foam formations, including the sort of uh, uh, German Austrian Czech style Schnitte, which is like all foam almost and uh, and a little bit of beer. Really, really, really quite something. It, it warms a brewer's heart. Garrett, what, what's the name I mean, of that place again? Sorry, you know, but I'd, Hospoda. You know, Hold on, Charlie. Remember I was born in England. I don't like a glass full of foam either. You know? <laughs> Charlie, uh, quick question. I'm impressed by the way you've retained your Northern British accent, uh, being a Southerner myself. Mine's all shot. Uh, but it's, I'm also not surprised that the Pope of Foam comes from the North, being with the use of the sparkler, the creamy head a la Boddington's is really um, an, a kind of innate thing up there. Well, I, well I want- it is, you know, and, and, and I was talking about sparklers only the other day. You know, when I was with Bass in the North of England, we'd go into pubs. And and they, you know, we'd look at the beer and they'd dispense and they'd screwed off the sparklers, uh, just to make so so they could distribute dispense it more quickly. So we we, we developed tamper-proof sparklers that they couldn't screw off. So they sawed them off. You know, they got a saw and sawed them off. You know, so. The, the, it really is a, a problem that people don't, you know, it's, it's a nuisance trying to present beer well. You know, you, if you want to have beer presented well, go to Ireland, you know, go to Dublin, and, and the length of time you've got to wait to get a Guinness there, you know, and it's all to do with reverential presentation, and, and, and that is so very important. But in the north of England, you know, we love foam. We, we love foam. So if you go to London, chances are you, you don't have much foam at all, and that's because the glass is a pint from bottom to top. But if you go to the north of England, you go to Sheffield or, or Newcastle or somewhere like that, then, you know, there's a line there at the top. It's a pint of liquid, and there's space for a, 
couple of centimeters of foam on the top of that, you know, and 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 woe betide if there's not a head on the beer. And, 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 and here endeth the epistle. <laughs> <laughs> Quick last thing, Charlie, tell us some of your favorite English beers. Well, the, from the old days. What can you remember? They're quite good. Um, yeah. There's a joke there. Um, oh, the cask conditioned ales, you know, the, the, the famous cask conditioned ales. I think my favorite is Timothy Taylor's from Keithley. But I'm, uh, you know, I'm very fond of Gales of Horndean, and uh, I love a, a harvest of love. Charlie, you just struck a note here. Charlie, we'll give everyone a chance to say hello to you. So, so uh, I've got, we've, I'm the importer of Timothy Taylor into the U.S., and we just recently brought their landlord here. So. Oh, wonderful. Oh, it's it's uh, a wonderful beer. Sure. Yeah, well, I've got, a, I've got a small tear in my eye now thinking about that. And that's and, just that's and lovely. We've got some friends to say hello to you. Charlie, uh, Josh Schaffner, he did New York City Craft Beer Week. He's the founder. Josh, tell us you have some friends here from Argentina. Yeah, well, um, coming up next month is the Craft Brewers Conference, which always brings uh, a number of luminaries as well as just uh, great people from all about in, into the U.S. And um, there's a... A few that have made their trip a little early and are making the rounds to uh, so tell us who some your of friends. our favorite spots. So Alan Sullivan here from Cork Brewery just outside of Buenos Aires, Argentina. Hello, how are you doing? <laughs> so Charlie, you got fans in Argentina too. All right. So th- <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Since I was born in England, I'm not sure that's true actually, is it? <laughs> well, let's just say you do, but I- I- I'm going to have to cut this short. So let's uh, say we've got some special announcements. The Bronx Brewery will release their newest beer, a bourbon barrel-aged Bronx Pale Ale. Come to the release party uh, April 11th, tomorrow. At Cafe Del Sas and a good Brazil bar events uh, April 18th, Girl Scout Cookies and Speakeasy Ales at Double Windsor in Brooklyn, and April 19th, Kelso Night at Bronx Ale House. All right, and we're hosting at Jimmy's Number 43 the April Sours Weekend at the end of the month. Check out Jimmy's Number 43.com. In closing, I'd like to thank our sponsors at GreatBrewers.com and the f- folks at the Good Brazil. You can find Beer Sessions Radio on our Facebook fan page, Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network, and you can also follow us on Twitter at beer underscore sessions thank you charlie very much charlie tony garrett br jason and the guys from argentina Cheers, charlie. for joining me everybody say goodbye come on on heritage Radio network hey, jimmy charlie. carboni Bye, jack insley brie connor brett thompson we'll see you next time on beer Sessions. tony where's your flute buddy come on garrett where's the song okay all right bye charlie roll out the barrel and lend me your ears i like beer Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on HeritageRadioNetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.